0: Broadcasting from Brian's basement in Brooklyn, New York, this is Campus Street Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Daryl. This is episode 26, Purity, Culture, and Good a Good Creation. Welcome, everybody, to the Fight, Laugh, Peace Network, FLFnetwork.com. And this is the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the faith. And this week I am coming from Brooklyn, New York. I've raced across the United States. Last week I was uh, on the side of the road in Pennsylvania. And this week I'm actually in a home, which is good. And uh, it's boiling outside here in New York City. And uh, the world's getting crazy uh, from all sorts of things, uh, kind of the news news this week. There are, well, there are two things. I guess one was from last week, but um, Joshua Harris, If uh, depending on where you're at in Christendom and what you've been exposed to, I n- was never really exposed uh, too much to him. I'm sure his thought bled over into the broader culture I was in. I don't think his book was released until 1997 or 1998, which would have been my um, senior year of college. And so even if people were reading it, In college, um, the book I Kiss Stating Goodbye, even people were reading it then. It didn't really influence me, although the things I've kind of heard about that book were kind of part of the broader culture I was a part of. Basically, stay in some sex, uh, go on dates in groups, and don't date around uh, and try to protect people's hearts and stuff like that. So that was all fairly common. And, uh, you know, years later, 20 years later, I guess it's being called purity culture. And so I'm going to brush briefly on that. Then I'm going to uh, get back to the Peter Adderton article that I looked at a little bit last week. Um, but one of the things that's kind of funny, um, it was on, uh, what is this from the 15th? Um, Ju- July, the 15th, uh, Ashlyn Harris, who's one of the U S soccer players. There was a, a year ago, there's a woman, um, U S soccer player. I guess she was a defensive woman, some sort of left defense woman, Defenseman. Uh, I'm just saying defenseman. But uh, so anyway, she would not wear um, rainbow colored pride numbers uh, as a representative of the U.S. women's national team. And uh, long story short, even though she's probably the better or best uh, defense woman that we have, um, she wasn't on the team. And part of it was probably was because of her Christian convictions and what she uh, stood for a year ago. And so a year later, they're putting a squad together. And for various reasons, they decided to leave her off. And Ashlyn Harris, on July the 15th, put this out. Hinkle, our team is about inclusion. Your religion was never the problem. And and here, so as she says that, I think the part of the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think this is so vital. We need to realize, and I, I've probably said this numerous times as this podcast have gone on, uh, no one cares that Jesus died 2,000 years ago in and of itself. So if your gospel um, is simply of a dead Jew 2,000 years ago, no one really cares. And so even here, Ashland Harris, Hinkle, our team is about inclusion. Your religion was never the problem. As long as your religion is that Jesus lives in your heart and there was some dead Jew 2,000 years ago who you think, you know, may have risen from the dead or, you know, gives you a better life, no one really cares about that. It's always uh, the implication. So even in the early church, they weren't being killed in and of itself because they believe that Jesus... Um, Died, or that he rose uh, from the dead. They're being persecuted because you know they'd be accused of hating humanity, and so. Uh, what is Ashlyn Harris's claim? Hinkle, our team, was about inclusion. Your religion was uh, never the problem. The problem is your intolerance, and, your, and you are homophobic. You don't belong in a sport that aims to unite and bring people together. You would never fit into our pack, or what this team stands for. And I don't think the first time I read that, I realized the you would never fit into our pack is so perfect. Because she starts it off with, Hinkle, our team is about inclusion. You would never fit into our pack. Um... And, uh, it's just, it's just absolute pure gold that in a way, in a way it's absolute pure gold because the, the incoherence, uh, is there for everybody to see. you will not fit our pack. Our pack's about tolerance and, uh, you're not welcome here. And, um, or, uh, what this team stands for, but I thought this team stands for inclusion, but they're not going to include, uh, Ms. Hinkle. So that's an absolute gem. And so anyway, it's so cliche at this point to point out their hypocrisy of their intolerance and everything else. Um... But I think we just kind of have to keep telling the narrative. And one day, by the grace of God, people's eyes will start to turn on. And now what we I, – I think what we need to learn to do rhetorically is not go for it immediately. And even if you ask some questions first um, – so, so maybe in this situation, if I had a chance to sit down with Ashlyn Harris – Um, even just asking her, what do you mean that she would never fit into your pack? And then let her tease those things out rather than just, as I did, laugh and pointing out that she's a hypocrite, which, you know, there may be an appropriate place for that after discussing some things and seeing that you're not getting anywhere with her. Uh, You may want to point out her hypocrisy and laugh about that a little bit. But um, I came across that. I just thought it was an absolute gem, and I think it's worth uh, uh, having realizing just kind of where our culture's at and the things that they say and the things they do, and they are genuinely incoherent. When you reject the Logos, when you reject Jesus, ultimately you're going to become incoherent. Um, You will become like what you serve. Um, G.K. Beale wrote a great book, We Become What We Serve, or We Become What We Worship. And as Christians, we ought to to be becoming more and more rational and logical because we are worshiping the Logos. And or logos, and the world is becoming increasingly irrational because they say there is no logos, and so they become increasingly irrational. And so you're going to get these absolutist sort of statements, literally within the same 140 word character or whatever they're 280, whatever you're allowed on uh, Twitter nowadays. Um, that the team's about inclusion, and you would never fit into our pack. I just I just think that's phenomenal. So keep that in mind. And then the other thing I want to brush in before we get into uh, Peter Adderton's article is the Joshua Harris divorce, and it's one of those things where for, I became a believer in 1993, so it was almost 26 years ago in August, I will have been a believer for 26 years, and when I first became a believer, um, you know, you're excited, you're zealous for Jesus, um, and you are I was going through college, and so, you know, you're tempted with everything that there is in college, and becoming a believer going into college, um, I was kind of expecting college to be a little bit like Animal House, and so I get there, and you know, trying to live as a Christian, it's not Animal House, so what, you know, how do I live, and so you're tempted with things and stuff like that, but by the grace of God, I had good people around me, and they helped establish me, and I remember kind of thinking, if I can get through college, then I'll persevere for the rest of my life, then it'll kind of get easier, then you get out of college, and, you know, then I'm pretty zealous, I was in seminary and stuff like that, but anyway, the the basic idea is that there's always kind of been a little bit of a point that I thought, if I can just get to there, I'll persevere. And the idea was if I can get through college, if I can get through my 20s, if I can get through my 30s, now 40s, 50s, and on and on and on. But as I've gotten older, what I've seen, it seems to be, is more and more people uh, falling off, and especially people um, that you genuinely, in my head, I would have never, you know, 15 years ago, I would have never thought of Joshua Harris as um, getting divorced. And I don't know where he's at in his faith. His wife is now at least hashtagging ex-evangelical, Sort of thing, um, but when, uh, but but the the two things I want to look at is is first of all the the one thing that's kind of interesting, and again it's kind of recognizing this is always the case. So this constant critique of purity culture, um, and even in the church we're getting more and more of a critique of purity culture. We're getting it even in the context of reform circles from the types of Revoice and uh, Greg Johnson. I think that is a direct attack um, in many ways on pure sexuality. So when Paul tells the Church of Corinth he wants to present them a pure virgin in Christ, and I think that's spiritually, but I also think that's very clear the implications is very practical in the sense that they're not fornicators, or in 1 Corinthians 7, Um, that they're not meeting up with temple prostitutes anymore, or in 1 Corinthians 5, sleeping with their stepmom or uh, maybe even married to their stepmom. And so all through the Bible, one of the things that's actually throughout the New Testament that they do spend a lot of time with is in sexual purity, and in many ways it does reflect our relationship with God. So whatever's all going on behind the scenes with Joshua Harrison, I I, I don't want to just talk about him and bash him because it's, it's actually one of those things that's actually brought me a lot of grief, and also just the, man, if he can fall away... Um, and again, I, I don't know him. I know people that know him, and I, I've heard nothing but good, good reports about who the man is and how he's lived and stuff like that. And who knows what's been going on the last few years? And he's kind of been brought through the ringer between sovereign grace and then um, whatever all else with his uh, kind of his apology tour for "I Kissed Dating Goodbye." Um, but it's a giant mess, and it's pretty scary, and it's uh, nothing to celebrate. But uh, the idea of purity culture. Even the world believes it, and you see that kind of with the cleansing of the Me Too thing. Any guy who they thought made a transgression, uh, they're going after. And even this morning with Al Franken, there was a—I think it was a New York Times account with an article that was basically debunking a lot of the accusations presented against him, but he had to step down because we must believe all women, and he didn't meet the culture's purity standards. And so even the secular world ends up coming up... With a purity culture of what is acceptable and who we marginalize and everything else. And that's the big critique of purity culture that does so much damage to women. And that if you have been in a culture that has damaged you from the standpoint of abuse and has damaged you from the standpoint of guilt manipulation and abusing you because of your sin, and I think that can be very common in the church, um, you know, that is something to be grieved. Um, and it's not godly. Um, but what we need to maintain is grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it is true that you ought to be sexually pure. Um, and if you have not been, well, there's grace uh, for sinners. And I don't know if that's genuinely missing from a purity culture or from the purity culture. I've never really been in um, a church culture. I've definitely interacted with individuals within the church. Uh, but from a broader church culture, I've always been in a pretty gracious environment where when I have sinned, people have been gracious to me. Uh, It could be debatable whether or not I've always been gracious to other people who I think have sinned and repented. I don't think that's been the case, and I've had to ask them for forgiveness and God for forgiveness because it's easy to uh, hold someone's sins against them, and I think I've sinned in that area. Um, And maybe we all have, um, one extent or another, depending on how personal the sins are. Um, But the point being is even when the world starts claiming and these ex-evangelicals start claiming Uh, that purity culture is toxic, um, especially when they use that language. What do they want to do? They want to purify the toxins. So what do they want to do? They want to get rid of toxic masculine. They want to purify the world of it. So the reality of it is even their rhetoric is going to point in the direction of um, purity-type culture. Um, So kind of just going back to the basics of what this podcast brushes on uh, all the time is – norms are inescapable, a binary. And and I think it's really the root is this binary is inescapable of the pure and impure. And every culture is going to have the people who are pure um, even if it's in the context of race. You're going to have the people who are for racism, people who are against it. And in our context, we're always going to be against the people, or by and large, against the people who um, are for racism. And so right now, kind of the purity aspect is to be against racism. And so I just think it's an escape part of a culture. Uh, I think the, the trajectory of what Joshua was trying to do was good, protect people um, from promiscuity and immorality. I think that's a good thing. Um, maybe there are abuses, and there's definitely you, – uh, you get in certain circles, and people are nuts, and it's just inescapable, especially sometimes – it does get nuts with sometimes with the patriarchy sort of stuff. And you see it on the other end with the egalitarian things as they go homosexual and everything else. So anyway, point being is um, it's a very grievous thing, hopefully, um, rather than just lamenting and complaining about Joshua – Uh, being grieved for him, and also continuing to set forth the reality of biblical purity uh, that we can understand what those things are. So I wanted to brush on those two things, and I wanted to, I was going to get into omniscience this week, but I want to uh, just brush on one thing within the Peter Aderton article, um, because I think it's central, and it's going to, next week we'll we'll brush on the omniscience thing, and hopefully, I think Wednesday, I'm going to go out and preach, I'm going to try to record some of it and hopefully maybe even include some of that next week. That's that's ultimately the goal of this podcast. <laughs> even though I'm 26 episodes in, I have yet to record my day and bring it to the table. That's the goal, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I think that will be uh, uh, a bit more richer where you can get the interactions and everything else. But anyway, here's a paragraph from the Peter Additon article. It says, uh, not all philosophers agree with René Dar- uh, with Aquinas. Rene Descartes, uh, for example, believed that God could do absolutely anything. This is building off of the idea of omnipotence, even the logically impossible, such as draw around." square. But even if we accept, for the sake of argument, Aquinas' explanation, there are other problems to contend with. For example, can God create a world in which evil does not exist? This does appear to be logically possible. Presumably, God could have created such a world without contradiction. It evidently would be a world very different from the one we currently inhabit, but a possible world all the same. Indeed, if God is morally perfect, it is difficult to see why we wouldn't have created such a world. So why didn't he? Well, the Christian response to that was he he did. Um, Genesis chapter 1, when he made the light, he called it good. Um, When he made the uh, sea and the sky, he called it good. When he made the land, he called it good. When he made the vegetation, good. Humans, animals, everything was good. And behold, he makes man. And behold, it was very good. And so as Christians, we want to maintain a rich doctrine of creation, uh, not just because we want to be uh, curmudgeons against Darwin and lament modern science, Uh, but it actually gets to the heart of things like this. Um, We do believe that God made a good world, and we also believe that through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, God is recreating or restructuring or resurrecting uh, that very good world, and we will uh, one day be in a resurrected, glorified world where there will be uh, no sin. And so we were originally in a world uh, where we were able not to sin or able to sin, and in glory we'll be in in a world where we will not be able to sin, and we will do that freely. And so I think that's a pretty important concept uh, is the doctrine of creation, um, that God's power uh, was able to create it, and the world that we live in Um, is now fractured because of human rebellion. And now the reality of human rebellion is going to get into the idea of God's omniscience, one they know, and all that sort of stuff because the unbelievers is going to want to push back at that point Um, because the reality of it is they want to try to escape God. And I don't think there's, um, as Aderton lays it out, any logical problems that he lays out that we cannot, to some extent, address. That doesn't mean that we don't have problems. And I do think that the problem of evil is a bit of a problem, and I'll develop that a little bit as we get into omniscience and stuff like that. But one of the things I also want to brush on in this is... um, uh, Adderton ends up quoting Charles Darwin. He says, uh, basically that free, however free will basically does not explain so-called physical evil or suffering caused by non-human causes, famines, earthquakes, etc. Nor does it explain, as Charles Darwin noticed, why there should be so much pain and suffering among the animal kingdom. A being so powerful and so full of knowledge as a god who would, who could create the universe is, to our finite minds, omnipotent and omniscient. And to revolt our understanding to suppose that his benevolence is not unbounded. For what advantage can there be in the suffering of millions of the lower animals throughout almost endless time? And so how do we want to look at that? I would say it's two things. So, so even when you get back to the doctrine of creation, we have two things that we can put We put together the Darwinian view, and we can put together the Christian theistic view. The Christian theistic view says uh, the world was made very good. Human rebellion ruptured the world, including physical suffering um, and things caused by nonhumans, be it famines, earthquakes, and everything else. God placed us in a garden, go and eat everything, Um, I'm going to go ahead and probably suggest there weren't any tornadoes taking place in the garden. Uh, They had an abundance of food, and so there was no famine and everything else. Um, But through their rebellion, um, they not only fractured the relationship with one another, fractured the relationship with God, but also fractured our relationship with the earth and then with the beasts of the field and everything else. And so man having dominion over the earth um, and violating the dominion of his creator uh, going against him – he ruptured everything. And so from dust he came to dust he shall return, and everything in the created order has been ruptured. On the flip side, the Darwinist basically just says, nope, just the way the world is. And so I, so what you need to appeal there, I think, to is to the Darwinist understanding that there is suffering. Is suffering bad? And if they want to say yes, um, is it because of the Christian doctrine of creation, or is it because, well, we just got here over 3.8 billion years, and you know, 3.8 billion years ago, self-replicating molecules sprung to life, and through war, death, and famine, as Darwin would say, has come higher forms of species. And so in a Darwinian view, the war, death, and famine uh, is not, I would say, is neither good or bad. You might be identified as suffering, uh, but it just is, and there are no oughts. An animal ought not to suffer, just the way the world is. And so observing the world around you from a purely naturalistic, Darwinistic standpoint uh, tells you nothing about the way the world should be. It's the Christian understanding that the world's broken, that enables us to look at the sufferings around us and say, man, something's wrong. And so what we want to do, we don't want to be cold and calloused, and just be philosophical about it, be like, oh, you Darwinists can't account for it. Um, I think what you need to do is learn to communicate to that reality That they understand something is deeply fractured. It doesn't matter if it's the feminist, because you know you can talk to the feminists, and oftentimes they understand that men have ruled poorly. And as Christians, we can come along and say, "Yup, men have ruled poorly." Um, But the old abuse is non-ulto usum, as Dr. Jack Collins would always say in uh, Covenant Seminary. Abuse is not an argument against use. And so, what we want to do is constantly find that point of contact of be it the suffering, be it the sin, be it the evil, be it the bu- abuses, be it the impurity, be of the a purity culture, whatever whenever and wherever we want to find it as Christians, we, wanna, we should have enough humility to say, yep, that's wrong. Here's what the scriptures teach. here's how we ought to have handled it, repent and move forward. And so when you you, know, you read an article like Peter Aderton's, um, you know he wants to start off by attacking Uh, divine omnipotence. And again, all these things need to be properly defined. And as Christians, we want to define it biblically. And what you find in Adderton's article is he vacillates kind of between kind of attacking the God of the philosophers then also kind of marginally uh, Christian theism. And what we want to do is say, nope, God's omnipotence means he cannot deny himself, he cannot lie. And that's going to tie into next week's issue of God's omniscience is basically, can God experientially know evil? Well, if God is truth and he cannot lie, he's never going to know experientially what it's like to lie uh, because he's truth. And so uh, what we need to do is end up clearly defining uh, God's omniscience, or uh, when it does become an absolute abstraction um, as we try to treat his power and we try to treat his omniscience and even perhaps maybe even his goodness, um, we end up confusing our terms. So I think we do get in logical problems. Um, but as Christians, we want to continue to maintain that Jesus Christ is the Logos, or the Logos, however you say it, and uh, that you know, God is not an irrational being, but he is the very foundation of all rationality, and so his omnipotence uh, does not deny himself, his omniscience does not cause him to deny himself, and his omnibenevolence does not cause him to deny himself. So we're going to look at that a bit more, hopefully next week, also hopefully along with some recordings of uh, preaching. So that's this episode of the Campus Church podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach me, Keith, at campusreacher.com or at campus. Uh, hoping I hope it, that you uh, might just see uh, bless you, keep you, talk to you next week Knowing that the harvest Might well come before the bloom He runs on his way There's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got Do with it what you can Cause the good God in heaven needs